Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you would be glorified today as we think about men and women in public worship. So Lord, open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And Father, we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to begin our second message, second message about honoring headship in public worship from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And at the beginning of our first message two weeks ago, I mentioned the Me Too and Church Too hashtags, which are telling this story of a long overdue reckoning for sexual abusers and harassers. I also mentioned a common thread in much of the secular responses to the Me Too revelations over the last several months. Their solution, kind of the secular solution, has been not only to identify and punish abusers, something that we would all agree with, but their solution has also been to call for more feminism. And one example of this appeared just this last month in the New York Times in an article titled, In the Me Too Era, Raising Boys to Be Good Guys. The author of the article is a guy named David McGlynn. He has two sons, ages 11 and 13, and more than anything, he wants to raise these sons to be good people. And yet, he's terrified at the prospect of his sons growing up not to be good people, but to be abusers, those who would fall under the censure of the Me Too hashtag. And so McGlynn asks a psychiatrist colleague of his for some advice about how to raise his sons to be good men who won't abuse or exploit women when they grow up. And so the, the article is this conversation that, about this conversation that he had with his friend. How do we raise boys to be good, not abusers? And guess what the psychiatrist's very first piece of advice is to him? If you want to teach them, to treat women well, his very first piece of advice is this. Abandon chivalry. He says boys need to stop being chivalrous and protective towards girls. Apparently he thinks we've got too much of that in the world. Here's how their conversation unfolds. I'm just going to read to you a little bit. He says this. One thing you want to be careful of, he said, is teaching boys to be chivalrous. We need to stop socializing boys to see women as needing protection. Wait a minute, I said remembering my mother's lessons about holding open doors and giving up my seat on crowded buses, I'd long taught my sons to show respect, especially to women. Isn't chivalry a good thing? The psychiatrist says, holding doors and giving up seats are prime examples of courtesy, Peter said. Of course those are good things, but the idea that women should be cherished and put on pedestals fosters what's known as benevolent sexism, which subtly, subtly demeans women as fragile and less competent. It reinforces a sexual script in which a man takes charge while a woman remains passive. Even if well-intentioned, he said, benevolent sex sexism has been shown to correlate with hostile sexism, with threats to women. And I was reading this and I'm thinking, this sounds really strange. It's almost as if he's saying that protecting women correlates with not protecting women. He also says that when a man protects a woman, he treats her as if she's fragile and less competent. But notice what he does here with his rhetoric. 
He's obscuring the very real difference between men and women. Differences which have inevitable social obligations in our lives. Every man is not stronger than every woman. Nevertheless, it is true that men are by and large stronger than women. That truth has social consequences. It has social consequences even in my own household. If we hear a bump in the night, we don't send one of our daughters downstairs to see what it is. Nor do we send my wife downstairs to see what it is. No, it's my calling and responsibility to check it out. And it would be shameful and wrong if I sent my wife or my daughters out to do something that it's my privilege and responsibility to do, to care for them. It's no dishonor to them to recognize my strength as a man as a calling to protect my family or even to protect others who are vulnerable and need protection. And yet, there is this feminist vision that would often label such care as sexism, even if it's called benevolent sexism. So here's my question. Do we really want to live in a world in which real differences between men and women are ignored? Do we want to live in a world in which the social consequences of those differences are ignored? As if there are no appropriate role distinctions that God has given to us as men and women created in his image. Our, our cultural ethos right now affects the way that people read a text like we're going to be looking at this morning. On the one side, we have feminists telling us that male leadership in the church and in the home is this great evil that needs to be eradicated. On the other side, we have scripture telling us that male leadership in the church and the home is God's design and is given to us for our blessing. Who are we going to believe? I want you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 16. Last week we looked at verses 2 through 3. This week we're going to focus on 4 through 16. Verses 2 and 3 deal with headship. We saw that it reads that Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of woman. God is the head of Christ. And in each of these relationships... Headship refers to authority. And in some sense, it's saying that the man is the head or the authority of the woman. And his headship resembles Christ's headship over man and God's headship over Christ. That teaching about headship, we noticed last week, is the underlying theological principle for everything else that we're going to look at this week. The rest of this passage in verses 4 to 16 is making the case that women have a responsibility to honor male headship during public worship. And Paul makes the case that women need to honor male headship in public worship in a particular way. He says, by wearing head coverings. And so where we're going this morning is to explore the three arguments that Paul puts forward for this thesis that he's driving. He's, he's going to give us an argument from shame in verses 4 through 6, an argument from creation in verses 7 through 12, and an argument from nature in verses 13 through 16. So the whole thing's about women need to honor male headship in public worship in a particular way by wearing head coverings, 
And he gives us three arguments for this. And the first one is the argument from shame. Everybody look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Now, the first thing you need to notice when reading this is that Paul begins to switch back and forth between the literal meaning of the word head and the figurative meaning of the word head, that figurative use that we saw in verse 3. In verse 4, that means that a man disgraces his metaphorical head. Who's his metaphorical head? It's Christ, right? Christ, a man disgraces his head, Christ, whenever he covers his literal head. But what is this covering and why is it considered disgraceful to Christ? Well, if you're looking at the New American Standard Bible, it renders this covering as something on his head. The ESV renders it as with his head covered. The underlying Greek expression is a little bit unusual, and it's why there's some ambiguity in the translations. Literally, he's talking about any man who prays or prophesies while having something down from the head. Some, some interpreters think that this, this means it's a reference to a man, man's having long hair hanging down from his head. So that Paul means to warn men not to let their hair grow too long, as he clearly argues later in verse 14. But, but I would argue that verse 14 is employing a different term than the one that we see in verse 4 right here. And the phrase in verse 4 is used elsewhere to refer to a, car, a garment that's worn over the head and that hangs down from the head. So in this case, it could have been a part of a man's, you know, in the first century, a toga that he was wearing may, may be drawn up over the head and hanging down from the head. Whatever it was, Paul has in mind some sort of a garment covering the head. He's not just talking about hair on the head. So the question remains, why is it disgraceful then for a man to cover his head like this? Well, in this context, the, the disgrace comes <clears throat> the, the disgrace comes from concealing his status as the image and glory of God. You see that in verse 7. The disgrace is also connected to a particular context. He says he's praying or prophesying. If he covers his head while praying or prophesying. So it's not that a man can never cover his head. It's just that he's not supposed to do it in the context of praying and prophesying, which means during his participation in the church's corporate worship. In that context, he's saying a man must not disgrace Christ by covering his head. But he says in verse 5 that the same is not true for women. Look what he says next. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same with her whose head is shaved. Now, I've just read to you from the New American Standard Bible, which renders this as every woman. But you'll remember from the first message that the word for woman can actually refer to a woman in general or to a wife in particular. I agree with commentators like Tom Schreiner who say that Paul uses this term with a certain fluidity in this passage. Even though Paul refers to women in general, he glides over to the relationship between husbands and wives, especially in verses 4 and 5. I do think that he has that relationship in the background here, even though he's talking about man and woman. I think there's a lesson in, in that for us. 
Because in part one, last week, we, or two weeks ago, we learned that he, the headship obligation is a covenantal obligation. Do you remember that? All men are not the head of all women. A husband is the head of his wife in the covenant of marriage. That's what we learned two weeks ago. But think about what that means if that's true. It means in this passage that the headship within the covenant of marriage has implications for the entire covenant community. The covenant community, the church, must be so ordered that its life in worship never undermine the headship of man and woman in marriage. I think that's what it means here. And Paul wishes to say that the way a woman comports herself, even in what she wears, can either affirm or disaffirm the male leadership within the church. Well, how so? Well, notice that it is not merely the men who pray and prophesy when the church gathers. The women are praying and prophesying in the assembly when the church gathers. And notice this. Paul does not rebuke the women for praying and prophesying. He doesn't wish for them to stop praying and prophesying in the church. He merely wants them to do the praying and prophesying in a way that signals their respect for the male leadership of the church. And in that culture, it meant wearing a head covering. In that cultural culture, it was considered shameful for a woman to have her head uncovered in public. It was customary for women to wear a head covering in public to mark her off as a, a private person who was intent on guarding her purity and so maintaining the honor of her husband or father. That's, that's why they did this. So the covering showed deference to her husband or to her father. To go without the covering disgraced her husband or father because she would be implying that she were on the same level with respect to headship. That's how one commentator describes it. So Paul says that when a wife prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, she disgraces her head in the sense that she disgraces her husband. Because of that dynamic within the marriage covenant, he's saying all women in the congregation should observe this custom of wearing a head covering. Why? Well, look at verse 6. For if a woman does not cover her head... Let her also have her head cut off, have her hair cut off. <laughs> I promise that is not a Freudian slip. <clears throat> hair cut off. If a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. This was not a tongue twister when I was preparing this, but somehow it came out to be. But, but here's the deal. The rationale here is based on a cultural norm, isn't it? In that culture, in the first century, that he's in, the, in the culture that he's writing to, it was considered shameful for a woman to shave her head. So Paul is making an analogy between the uncovered head and of a woman and the shaved head of a woman. If a woman is going to go without a head covering, which is what some of them presumably were doing during worship, he's saying that they should go ahead and shave their head too. 
which presumably none of them were doing, but would have been considered shameful even by them. In other words, if they understand how shameful it is to shave their heads, they need to see that going without the covering is equally shameful. And when I was in college, my parents bought me this, a new car, this 1992 Nissan Sentra. And while I was at home from school uh, one evening, I was out in front of our house and I couldn't get the trunk closed. And so my solution was just to keep banging it until it finally closed. Every time I was closing it, it would just pop back open and I just banged it really hard. And I finally got it closed. But then it wouldn't open anymore. <laughs> it was just stuck. And I'm outside in front of the house with some of my friends and my dad comes outside and he's, you know, what's going on here? And my buddies explained to him what I had just done. The trunk is closed because I just slammed it. And, and uh, my dad was pretty upset with me and with my method of fixing things. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, why don't you just light the whole thing on fire? Which, of course, I wasn't going to light the whole thing on fire because that's absurd. Why would I destroy my own car? But, but that, that was his point. If you're going to treat your car that recklessly, you're eventually going to destroy it. If you think lighting it on fire is absurd, why are you treating it in a way that if you keep acting that carelessly, you're going to destroy it in some other way? And I think that that's kind of the, the, the logic that Paul has here. He's saying to the women that if you're going to shame your head by having your head uncovered, you might as well just go ahead and cut all your hair off. To which they might say, but that's absurd. No woman shaves her head. Why would we do something so publicly shameful? And that's Paul's point. If you think cutting your hair off is absurd, then why would you go without a covering, which ends up in the same kind of disgrace? Now, we're going to talk about here just a little bit about whether the head coverings are a timeless principle that need to be observed or not. But here's his bottom line. It's pretty simple. When women pray and prophesy in church, he's telling these Corinthians in the first century that they need to honor headship by wearing this head covering. Now, there are a number of important items of application, I think, in these first three verses. But I want to focus, first of all, on one obvious application. Paul assumes that women are praying and prophesying when the church gathers for worship. I hope you caught that. And so that raises an obvious question for us. Do we here at Kenwood Baptist Church share that assumption with Paul? Do we expect women to be involved in worship in ways that involve them speaking from the podium to the congregation? Paul's situation is a bit different than ours because he says that the women were praying and prophesying in church. We're going to talk more about prophecy when we come to chapters 12 through 14. So I'm going to postpone that discussion until then. But it's sufficient to say now that pro prophecy is not the same thing as preaching or teaching the Bible, which is forbidden to women in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12. Prophecy is speaking a spirit-inspired utterance to the congregation. Now, you just need to know that at Kenwood Baptist Church, your elders um, believe that prophecy was a gift that existed in the apostolic era, but which ceased afterward. That's a conversation for another time. I know there may be some different views on that in here, but that, that tends to be what our view is on, uh, as elders. So that makes our situation a bit different from Paul's. Having said that, we have something like prophecy whenever we read Scripture aloud during church. 
because that kind of reading is a verbal sharing of divine revelation. You see the analogy there with prophecy. Even though prophecy, I think, has ceased, we still have verbal sharing of divine revelation whenever we read Scripture. And we still have public prayers. Based on this text, I believe, the rest of the elders also believe, that it is totally appropriate for sisters in Christ to read Scripture and to pray during worship. In fact, that is something that we do here, um, that we've done here in the past at Kenwood Baptist Church before the merge. It's something that we have often done in special services like at Christmas or at Easter. And it's something that we would like to reincorporate here on Sunday morning in our Sunday morning worship services as well. So this text is telling us that when we do it, we would simply want to follow Paul and do this in the right way, a way that doesn't undermine the male leadership uh, of the congregation. Nevertheless, the text is clear that the mere reading and the praying do not undermine headship, or else Paul would have said, stop doing that. He assumed they were doing that within the congregation, and there's no rebuke of it. So Paul argues that women should honor headship within the congregation by wearing a head covering when they pray or prophesy. And his first argument is, in support of this is an argument from shame. He's saying if you don't honor headship in this way when you pray and prophesy, it's shameful. But the second argument is an argument from creation. Everybody look at verse 7. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. Now maybe you noticed this, but Paul is riffing on Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 where God says, let us make man in our image. Right? So verse 7 says, um, he is the image and glory of God. Genesis 1.26 says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. But Paul has changed a little thing here. Paul says that the man is the image and glory of God rather than the image and likeness of God. Why does, he say, why does Paul say it that way? Well, what Paul wishes to, to say is that a man's head should be uncovered so as not to conceal the image of God. Glory is the opposite of the disgrace that occurs when a man covers his head. So the man is to keep his image-bearing head uncovered in order to glorify God. That's the argument here. But notice that it says that woman is the glory of man. Now, Paul knows that woman is equally created in the image of God. We know that too because we've all read Genesis 1, verses 26 to 27. Male and female created equally in the image of God. And so I think that's why Paul doesn't say that she, the woman, is the image of man. He believes that she's in the image of God too. What does Paul say? Look at the text. Here, he wants to focus on her obligation to be the glory of man, by which he means to bring honor and respect to the man. But again, you begin to see how Paul has the covenant of marriage in the background when he's saying this. When a wife is a, a woman of honor and faithfulness, he, what he's trying to say is, is that she brings honor to her husband. Uh, Proverbs eleven sixteen says, A gracious woman attains honor. If you read it in the Greek translation, it says, A gracious wife brings glory to her husband. 
And I think that that's what Paul is getting at here, that when he says the woman is supposed to be the glory of man. She has an obligation to bring honor and respect to the husband. Verse 8 explains why the woman has an obligation to bring honor to the husband. Look at verse 8. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. Do you see how Paul's argument at this point is an argument from creation? And in fact, it's an appeal to the order of creation. It reflects the ancient principle that we call primogenitor. Some of you have heard that big word before. Primogenitor is just the idea that the one born first has preeminence and often leadership in the family. The man in Genesis 2 comes first, thereby establishing male headship between the first man and woman in the first marriage. See what he's saying there? There's a headship relationship, and it's based on the fact that the man came first. Man does not originate from the woman, but woman from the man. Look at verse 9. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Can you see what Paul's doing here? He's, he's basically explaining to us Genesis 2, what its meaning is and what its implications are. He's hearkening back in particular to Genesis 2.18 where God says that he would make a helper who corresponds to the man. The woman that God created would not only be the man's sexual complement, but she would also be his social complement. Her role would be to be a helper to him, one who comes alongside him and assists him in the calling that God has given him as head of the first family. But notice that God established this headship relationship between husband and wife before sin, any sin, had come into the world. Headship, therefore, is not a result of the fall. It's a result of God's good creation and is given to us for our good and for our flourishing. That's the thing that's hard to believe in our current culture because our current culture is telling us that it's not good for us to observe this kind of a relationship in marriage or even to give any kind of a tip of the hat to it when we publicly gather for worship. The Bible says that it's good for us, it's for our good and flourishing. Therefore, to ignore or pervert headship is to go against what's good for us. And so if that's the case, Paul obviously concludes, verse 10, Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Many translations say that a woman ought to have a symbol or a sign of authority over her head. But if you're reading this really literally, the text actually says that the woman ought to have authority over her head. And that phrase, to have authority over something, that phrase in the Bible um, usually means to exercise authority over something. And so in this case, I think it means that she should exercise authority over her own head, her own literal head, by covering it so as not to expose herself to indignity. That's what I think Paul's getting at here. One commentator puts it this way. The head covering communicates to others in public that the woman is demure, chaste, and modest, and that she intends to stay that way. The head covering in Paul's setting 
was an important piece of apparel because no man wanted his wife or female or a female in his charge to appear in public in a way that hints intentionally or unintentionally that the opposite might be true. So the key here is that in that culture, that first century culture, the head covering communicated femininity. And in particular, it communicated a wife's respect for her husband or even perhaps for her father. Tom Schreiner says it this way. He says, Paul wants women to wear head coverings while praying and prophesying because to do otherwise would be to confuse the sexes and give the shameful impression that women are behaving like men. In other words, Paul does not want the women to give the impression that there's no difference between man, a man and a woman. Paul knows that it's possible to subvert cultural norms in such a way so as to obscure the difference between man and woman. And Paul says, no, don't do that. Why? Because of the angels. <laughs> this is a notoriously obscure expression. I'm sure some of you have puzzled over this. What in the world are the angels doing at this point in the argument? But I don't think it's, I don't think it's that difficult. There's a lot of discussion about this. But, but I think it's simply re reflecting Paul's belief that angels are present when the church gathers. Why? Because wherever God draws near, so do, all of, so do other heavenly beings. I think of one cross-reference here. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 21. Paul gives this solemn charge as he's writing to Timothy, and Timothy would presumably stand up and read this to the church at Ephesus. And what does Paul say? I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels. He's charging them in the presence of God, and angels apparently are present when Timothy is reading this before the congregation. Psalm chapter 138 and verse 1 when the psalmist praises God, he says, I will give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing your praise before the heavenly beings. And in the Greek translation, it says before the angels. And so the idea is that when God is worshipped, there are other heavenly beings present. And so that the angels are present in their corporate worship, as Paul is writing to them, indicates that heaven is looking on in their worship. The Corinthians are in the presence of God when they gather and they need to honor the headship principle that God has established in the order of creation. If heaven is looking on, we have to observe the, norm that God, the norms that God has given us. Now, having said that, Paul gives a short qualifier. Look at verse 11. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Paul doesn't want the men to think that the order of creation makes the man into some kind of a higher order of being than the woman. No, there's an interdependent mutuality between the sexes. In what sense? Well, it is true that the first woman came from the first man. But guess what else is true? Every other man after that has come from woman. Which means that every man in the congregation that Paul's writing to and every single man in this room came from woman. And so there's this interdependence that shows that we cannot declare our independence from each other as if we don't need each other or don't care for each other. 
And he says that God alone is the source of all of us, which is a reminder, I think, that we're all equally created in his image. We're all divine image bearers, just as Genesis 1 teaches. But Paul's bottom line here is that a man ought not to cover his head in church, but that a woman should. Why? To honor this headship principle. And this is where we're going to have to discern a distinction between fundamental theological truth and changing social conventions that reflect that truth. Even though social conventions like head coverings or hair length even may change, the underlying theological truth never changes, like the obligation to honor male headship in the assembly. So uh, many people who deny the Bible's teaching about male headship in the congregation like to point to our interpretation, the one that I've just presented to you, they like to point, out, point it out as an inconsistency. Uh, one evangelical feminist named Rebecca uh, Grotius, who just passed away recently actually, she says in her book, Good News for Women, she says, hey, if you think male eldership in 1 Timothy 2.12 is based on the order of creation and is therefore a timeless principle, but head coverings, you say, are based on the order of creation in 1 Corinthians 11, and yet you don't accept the wearing of head coverings as a timeless principle. How does that make sense? That shows that you're just picking and choosing your timeless principles. Your order of creation argument is bogus. That's a common objection to what I've been uh, trying to explain to you this morning. Well, she's actually, I think, wrong about this. The order of creation doesn't establish head coverings. The order of creation establishes headship. Head coverings are a way to honor the headship principle in Paul's setting. But head coverings don't have that same meaning in every cultural setting. In our culture, head coverings don't have the same meaning that they had in the first century. And I hope it's clear by now that we, we don't believe that women have to wear head coverings today. But that doesn't mean that we come to a text like this that we can just ignore this section of Scripture. It means that we need to ask ourselves if there's anything in our culture that relates to the headship principle, like head coverings in their culture related to the headship principle. Because the headship principle is something that we still have to honor. If a woman, for instance, comes to church and begins dressing in a way that self-consciously ignores the social distinctions between male and female, let's say she comes to church dressed like a man in such a way that she clearly wants to look masculine, does that honor her husband or dishonor him? Does that honor male leadership in the church or dishonor it? I think that's what Paul's getting at here. Or if a man comes to church and dresses in a way that is self-consciously feminine, let's say by maybe he wears a dress and makeup to church, does that honor Christ as his head? Or does it dishonor Christ by obscuring a distinction between male and female that Christ intends to be clear? If a woman, or even a man for that matter, say, comes up here to read scripture or to pray, but before doing so, she decides to deliver a little sermonette, which means she's now doing what 1 Timothy 2.12 says she shouldn't do. Does that honor the pastoral leadership of the church or dishonor it? There are ways to undermine headship 
in our setting, in our congregation, that have nothing to do with head coverings. And it falls to us to know when flouting certain social conventions actually obscures a distinction that God intends for us to make clear. If Paul told the Corinthians to honor our heads in culturally appropriate ways, we need to strive to do the same. Otherwise, we risk shaming our heads, and, and that's precisely what Paul's trying to tell us not to do. So Paul gives us, first, an, first of all, an argument from shame, secondly, an argument from creation, but finally, he gives us an argument from nature. Look what he says in verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with head uncovered? Now, this is obviously a rhetorical question that appeals to common sense. It means something like, hey, Corinthians, you should already know that it's not proper for a woman to pray with her head covered. How, how do they know that already? Well, look at verse 14. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. The reason that they know that it's not fitting for a woman to pray with head uncovered is because nature teaches that to them. And here, Paul is entering into another analogy, and the analogy relates to hair length, but it also relates to nature as well. What, what exactly does nature teach us about hair length and about head coverings? Did you know that there is one other text in the Bible where Paul talks about nature in connection with male and female? You remember where it is? It's in Romans chapter 1 and verse 26 where Paul talks about homosexuality as against nature. He uses the same word there. Nature in that verse refers to the sexual complementarity of male and female bodies. That's what nature refers to. Homosexuality goes against nature because it goes against God's designed differences of male and female bodies. They're, complement, they're complementary differences. And I think that Paul has something like that in mind here in 1 Corinthians 11 when he talks about nature. What does nature... God's design and creation of male and female bodies. What does nature teach us about male and female? It teaches us that there is a biological difference between male and female. Virtually every culture on earth has social conventions that mark those differences. That are unseen because we wear clothes. So that those social conventions mark that men look like men and women look like women. The hairstyles and the dress may change from culture to culture, but the need to manifest the natural distinction between male and female doesn't change. And where the natural distinction is obscured, you have some kind of a, a perversion developing on your hands. So I think what Paul is saying here is that nature teaches that the distinction between male and female should be manifest in the way that we present ourselves. And in Paul's culture, hair length was a part of that distinction. Men were supposed to have short hair and women long hair. Long hair in that culture suggested that he was, a man was weak, soft, or effeminate. It suggested sexual ambiguity and it hinted at moral perversion, some commentators say. 
Short hair on a woman suggested masculinity and a dishonoring of, of headship. So hair length in the first century setting was a cultural manifestation of, a, of God-given natural differences between the sexes. But how do we know that it's a cultural manifestation of natural difference and not a natural manifestation of a natural difference? Well, I think one way we know that is because Paul doesn't tell us how short is too short or how long is too long. You will look in vain in this passage to find out how short is too short or how long is too long. The prescribed hair length for man and woman is relative to the opposite sex, isn't it? And which su suggests that the important thing was not the exact length, but the distinction between the male and the female. If you present yourself in a way with your hair, your clothing, or otherwise, if you present yourself in a way that is indistinct from the opposite sex, that is a dishonor to nature, even if the distinctions are culturally encoded norms. But look what he says at the end of verse 15, because Paul presses the analogy to the head coverings. For her hair is given to her for a covering. David Garland, one commentator, explains it this way. He says, Paul is interested in what nature teaches and brings up hair only by way of analogy. It serves as a type of cover. Nature has given women hair as a glorious natural cover. Therefore, women should follow the lead of nature as defined by social decorum and cover their heads. And then Paul adds one final bit in verse 16. But if one is inclined to be contentious, contentious we have no other practice nor have the churches of God. I think Paul means by that, if you don't like honoring headship in worship, you need to know that you are out on an island as a church. If you want to follow me and the other apostles, if you want to follow biblical teaching, you won't fight me on this. You will turn your heart toward honoring headship in the way that I'm telling you to do it. And so Paul's given them three arguments to support honoring headship when they gather for worship. He gives an argument from shame, an argument from creation, and then this last argument from nature. But if all those arguments are valid, and they are valid, then what can we conclude from this? Well, I want to finish with two applications. And the first one is this. If all this is true, this is true. Both men and women can be involved in the public reading of Scripture and in public prayer when we gather for worship. When Susan and I were first married, a church asked me to come and preach uh, their Sunday morning service and to lead their musical worship. So some of you didn't know that, but I play guitar. I used to sing a bunch. But um, the pastor, so I, they wanted me to preach and to sing and lead the worship. And I asked the pastor in advance if Susan could help me to sing. I would play the guitar, I thought, and we would both sing. At least that's what I wanted, but the pastor told me no. He had talked to the elders, and they said no. And the reason was because they believed that biblical principle required that women cannot have any role in addressing the congregation, not even in, in singing. Now, I believe, your elders believe here, that that is going way too far. That is certainly not the way Paul envisions women's participation in 1 Corinthians 11. The women in his congregations prayed and prophesied. Likewise, I think that means we ought to accept the same sort of activity in our own worship services. 
Now, as I mentioned earlier, we already um, do this at our Christmas and Easter services, and we used to do it many years ago in our main worship services, but we kind of fell out of practice with it over the years. Uh, but it wasn't because of a change in our beliefs. It was for other reasons. When uh, Some years ago when we used to do this before the merge, we would have women come up and read with their husbands. And they would come up as a team. One would read, one would pray. And after a while, some of our members started to think that was weird. And we started to think it was weird, so we stopped doing it. <laughs> so uh, that's what happened. But we, we were trying to honor the headship principle, but I, we just ended up thinking that that's not a required thing. So we stopped. But the, the elders have been praying about this and talking about this for several months. And so I'm, I'm communicating to you something on their behalf. We would like to restart this and simply do it in the same way that we do it on Wednesday nights when women pray and in our special services when, uh, when others, uh, when they read scripture. One more quotation from Tom Schreiner. He says it this way. We should affirm the participation of women in prayer and prophecy in the church. Their contribution should not be slighted or ignored. Nevertheless, women should participate in these activities with hearts that are submissive to male leadership and they should dress so that they retain their femininity. That's his comments on this text. And that also raises the second point of application that I want to bring up. It's this. No matter who is praying or reading scripture or singing or anything else that happens from the platform during worship, we should always comport ourselves in a way that honors headship, and male headship in particular. Women, that means that you embrace femininity. You don't shun femininity in the way that you present yourself. Men, that means that you embrace biblical masculinity. You don't shun it. You embrace the fact that God has called you to lead your homes and that he's called some of you even to leadership in the church. To men and women, we don't have to baptize cultural norms in and of themselves as the path to holiness. That's not what I mean by this sermon. But neither should we ignore cultural norms when doing so obscures the distinction the natural distinction between male and female. That is a part of this text. It's why, it's one of the big reasons why um, our, our current cultural push is to obscure differences between male and female. Some people are even cross-dressing and completely trying to erase the difference between male and female. Some people are having surgeries that remove the marks of their manhood or their womanhood and amputate healthy body parts. What I'm saying is that's a radical transgression against this text, where God says that we should recognize the distinction, celebrate the distinction as a good gift from God. And it's some, something certainly we would, we would want to celebrate here. We should look to honor the natural distinction between the sexes in every way that we can, even in the way that we dress and present ourselves. So, one last thing. If you're a visitor today, what a sermon you got to hear. <laughs> uh, this is one of the uh, most disputed, hardest passages in Scripture. It's so um, countercultural. If this didn't make sense to you, I want to say at least one thing perhaps that will. Um, what we fundamentally believe here as Christians is that we're all sinners. And God loves us so much that he sent his own son to die for us on the cross He took the penalty that we deserve for our sins upon himself when he died. 
And then after three days, God raised him up from the dead, and he's alive right now, seated at the right hand of God. And because he's alive, he promises to give us eternal life. The only way to inherit forgiveness of sins and eternal life is by trusting in Jesus, trusting in what God has done for us through Jesus. You can't earn that salvation. You can't earn your keep. It's a total gift of grace from God. And if you want to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus this morning, the Bible says he will save you. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would take this word, apply it to our hearts, apply it to our church, so that we can be better reflectors of you, so that we can glorify our covenant heads when we come together for worship. Father, help us not to be punchy or countercultural just for the sake of being pugnacious, but help us to be countercultural in the ways that honor you and help us to be humble as we do it. And Lord, I pray for the flourishing and for the goodness of all your servants gathered here. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.